welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. But before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions and is not to be treated as medical advice. If you are struggling with mental health, please speak to your physician or reach out to a service such as Lifeline. Thank you. These lads are mental recognizes the Gadigal people of the Aurora nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders past and present and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. On this week's show, we have Love Martin Doe. What a man this guy is. He grew up in South African apartheid. He didn't start school till he was nine years old. He witnessed tapes and murders under the Robert Mugabe regime at the age of eight. His best friend was shot and killed and died in his arms. He was jailed for three months for talking to a white girl at a supermarket where the police brutally battered him with batons uh, for his crime, or so-called crime. Most notably, Lovemore also became a world champion boxer. He won three titles, two at the welterweight, one at super lightweight. He was also the sparring partner for Floyd Mayweather before his famous match against Ricky Hatton. After finishing boxing, he got educated and got seven degrees, graduated in law, runs a law practice for family and criminal law here in Sydney. He now does pro bono work for Indigenous communities and family and criminal law clients. And of course, he also wrote a book and is now inducted into the Hall of Fame. We keep saying it every episode, but... (laughs) This could be our favourite one. What an absolute legend, a true inspiration, and we really think you're going to enjoy this one. Definition of mental health, you know, as opposed to mental illness, I would say, you know, is a state of uh, well-being where one can uh, recognise and realise his, his or her own abilities, you know, to cope with the normal stresses of life. Mm. Yeah, we Gary, we had someone who's had a very similar answer to that. Can you remember? No, I can't remember. No, I someone, can't. someone said the exact, almost the exact same way you think it's, it's someone's ability to cope with the different stresses of their life. Oh my God, who was that? Which I, I think that's a good, simple way. And I think it's good to differentiate between what she did was between mental, mental health and mental illness. I know mm-hmm. they can be under the one umbrella, but that's it. Me and Neil often talk about how when we, we do discuss mental healthy people, the first thing they think of is the illness side of things, as opposed to the day-to-day life stressors of mental health. Um, so I think that's good to differentiate the difference there. Look, it, it I, was... I think, you know, um, life is full of, you know, life is of, you know, full of stresses. And if you are able to, you know, um, um, handle the stress, you know, and then in a personal thing, you know, then you've got a better mental state, you know, your better, your mental state is well suited, you know, to deal with all these everyday stresses. Whereas when you look at, you know, people that got mental health issues, uh, you know, they, they can't deal with everyday stresses and, and that's why they end up, you know, uh, doing whatever they do. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and look, um, you know, and then we start looking differently at them because they can't handle the stresses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I think it came to me, Gary, it was Paul McVeigh, I think, that said that. Yeah. Um, so very, it was actually interesting because he was also a professional athlete. So I wonder, is there a link there between like the thought process of yeah, yeah. seeing it as, as a condition that you just, you deal with, as you said, look more, 
versus like an illness because a lot of times people think oh i'm just unlucky it's something that happens to just me and nobody else and what we're learning through the season one is a lot of people are saying that yeah it's just part of being a human right yes i might have things that are a little bit more extreme than gary or yourself of more but that doesn't mean that you can't build coping mechanisms around it so yeah very interesting okay great I think you know during COVID, we were actually able to see, and you know we're able to see a lot of you know mental health issues happening because a lot of people just couldn't deal, you know, with, with the with the stress that came, you know, with COVID nineteen, and and it caused a lot of problems, and and and, and not just adults as well. You know, if you look at children as well, you know, it, it really affected a lot of children. Uh, in particular, when they had to stop, you know, going to school and had to study from home, you know, um, not being able to see their friends and all, it was really hard for a lot of children to cope, you know, with that. Yeah, I think I think that was often overlooked. I love more, and that's actually one of the reasons why um, I started discussing with Neil to get this podcast going. Was I work with a lot of children, um, soccer players, and initially when the lockdown started. They were doing some training on the pitch, just individual stuff. And they were happy. They're like, oh, I'm working from home. It's brilliant. It's excellent. But as that started coming, they were turning up, shoulders down, like almost tired, couldn't be bothered doing anything. I'm like, what's like, what's happening? How are you doing? And at the point, like, I just want to go back to school. I just want to go back to, yeah. they hated it. They're, like, they're in a little apartment in Sydney. They didn't really have anywhere to go and exercise. Or if they did, like the other friends' parents were a bit skeptical about them all being together. So they felt they were isolated away from their friends. And then they wanted back into that routine of being at school and then just rather been staring at a screen all day. And then it started getting worse and worse and worse. And it was to the point where it was actually getting concerning where I had to start speaking to parents and being like, is he okay or is she okay? Because um, we're getting depressed. And it was the first time it sort of hit me hard that, that as children, because you do often overlook, you think children are going to have a happy childhood. Everything's going to be great. And it's not affecting them because you think of the adults, but it did yeah. hit pretty hard. No, I totally agree. You know, we often, we do overlook that often, you know, um, we, we are more concerned about, you know, losing our jobs, or, you know, you know, whatever issues we're facing through COVID, but then we, we tend to just ignore the children. Yep. You know, a lot as well. And which is why we really, really need to talk to them and you know, ask them, you know, how, how are you going? You know, how are things going? How are you feeling? How, you know, uh, I've got a six year old, you know, granddaughter uh, you know, that I spend a lot of time with. Um, and during the lockdown, I've had to um, homeschool her myself, um, you know, um, but at times I would have to take her to school, you know, uh, because of my job, I was allowed to, you know, take her to school. Uh, but I could see even when she came back from school, she was just different, you know, to the little girl that I know. And, and she was always down and, you know, and, and it only took me talking to her and asking her, you know, what's, what's going on? You know, uh, you know, she started telling me, you know, um, as much as I love going to school, it's not the same. I go to school, my friends are not there. I miss my friends, you know. Um, so just talking to her did help, you know, to try to find out, you know, that, you know, she's also going through a lot, not just us, not just me concerned about, ah, you know, my job is on hold now. Um, you know, I'm losing money, this and that. But children as well, you know, they go through a lot. Yeah, and I think Gary, didn't mention it but he also he has an app which he gave to kids for free during the covid period to keep them active from home which was i think it was a really amazing initiative that he did and 
also as children when you like at that age you're going through a very big developmental stage of your life right like that social interaction is like paramount to your development and to your point love more as well even from the parents point of view they're taking on extra stress like maybe lost their job businesses are struggling then they come home and then they kind of that kind of oozes back into the kids then and it just becomes this kind of vicious cycle and I, I personally I, I think we won't know the true effects of this COVID period for a, a many years down the track you know um, right now we're kind of still in the thick of it but like it's going to be interesting to see what happens afterwards and yeah hopefully hopefully it won't be too bad in the long run you know hopefully hopefully uh look i think the other thing you know and i partly sometimes i partly blame the government and i just think um sometimes we are overreacting you know the virus is here you know the pandemic is here we just gotta learn to live you know we can't stop everything you know and and, and you know I, I think the actions they are taking sometimes is causing it's it's in fact causing a lot of problems, you know, a lot of stress for people, uh, you know, people losing their jobs and all that. We just gotta learn to live with it. You know, the COVID-19 is not the first pandemic the world has had to deal with. Mm. You, know, you know, we've had the Spanish flu in the past and people have had to deal with it. We just gotta learn, it's here, we gotta learn to deal with it, but we can't stop everything. Yep. No, I agree. And I was only speaking to my PT this morning and he was telling me in his, in his gym, when the pandemic hit and obviously their revenue came down, he was saying that the owner just would not reply to any of their messages. And they were trying to say, hey, like, can we pay this? Can we pay that? And he waited until the moratorium was finished. And then he started communicating saying, oh, will you owe me like X amount of, of, of rent? And now he said he's threatening to like close down their business because, and, but then he wouldn't negotiate at all during the period that, you know, it's just, so there's all these kind of things going on and you're like, yeah, it's just not ideal. Yeah, no, it's been tough for everyone, you know, and I think um, unless you know a way, you know, to cope with the stress, you know, it's really tough, you know. I can talk about myself and I, you know, um, I've had to introduce other means, other ways to deal with, you know, with, with the COVID-19 stress, you know. Uh, for example, training, you know, um, I found during the lockdown, I was training a lot, a lot more than I did uh, prior to that. And, and that just kept my mind going, you know, just going out for a, for a run and relaxing. Uh, even, you know, even during the times when we were limited as to how far we could, you know, we could, we could leave our homes and I would just still train around home. Um, and other thing I did was, uh, you know, I bought a little puppy, you know. Nice. <laughs> And that I found that really, really helped me, you know, um, and, and uh, I actually, I suggest, you know, that, you know, anyone that's going through a, a lot of mental health issues, they should, you know, they should consider getting a pet. Yep. Because that, that, that helped, that helped. Yeah, that's, uh, again, talking about common, common trends we've had in the, the episode so far. Exercise, of course, has come up a lot yeah. for mental health, but a few people have mentioned dogs has been one of the number one things they recommend are having or something to do every single day that keeps them mentally healthy is just going to walk their dog, having their dogs. One of their favorite things or keeping them happiest is when they've got their dog. So yeah, I, I definitely empathize with Can that. Can I just say though, they are, <laughs> I've always had dogs as well. My dog is sitting over there 
And he's also, he's pissed me off so much during COVID. <laughs> normally I'd go to work in the city and I'd have a break from him. Now I don't have any break. I've literally, I see him 24 seven and he's, he's need, he's a pug. Oh my God. Like, I'm like, fuck it out. He's like staring at me now. He's like, he just causes me so much anxiety. <laughs> uh, just moving on, love more. I mean, um, Myself, I'm quite a big boxing fan. I mean, that's probably how most people know you from your time in boxing. But looking further into your life, your life story is, is pretty incredible. Uh, and me and Neil were talking about it yesterday. It's, uh, I mean, phenomenal. Nice. And uh, the probably easiest thing from a podcast start standpoint would be maybe just starting from the start and getting a, a background for listeners to what it was like growing up in, in South Africa. Look, uh, look, I... I was born during the apartheid era, so you know it was really tough, you know, uh, for for any black man in South Africa at the time. So you know, um, I've had to face a lot of, um, you know, I, I actually witnessed a lot of atrocities, you know, committed against my friends, family members. Um, you know, I come from a very very poor family, and when I say poor, you know, to an extent that you know sometimes we'll go to bed without a meal, you know, for two or three days without a meal. Um, you know, I didn't even start school till I was nine years of age. You know, uh, you know, part of it is because we couldn't afford to pay for my school fees. So I had to, when I started school, I also had to find a job, you know, uh, cleaning up some people's gardens or, you know, uh, so, so that I could pay for my school uniform and pay for my school fees. So when I said tough, you know, it was really tough. And I come from a very, very poor family. And, and just, you know, having to deal with... Um, the political issues we were facing at the time, it, it was just hard, you know, uh, as a black man, it meant, you know, your life meant nothing, you know, so, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm, I don't know how familiar you are, you know, with the South African history, you know, and, and apartheid, but, you know, the best way I could just put it to you is it was tough. Yeah, I think, you know, I think I probably underplaying by just calling it tough. <laughs> it's probably... Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and I've read some. I read some stories um, about your time during that. I mean, I think it was when you're 16 years old. Uh, you were in prison for was 90 days, or just yes. chatting, just chatting to a white girl at a supermarket. Is that correct? Look, I yeah, because a, you know, a white girl took a liking. You know, she took a liking at me uh, at a time when uh, blacks and whites were not allowed to mix. Uh, and what they did, in fact, they ended up. Uh, you know, they just arrested me and tried to hit me with these trumped up charges that you know, I had sexual assault today. But the good thing is she turned around and said, no, if you do this, I'm going to tell the whole world, you know, the whole truth. So what they did eventually, they just locked me up for 90 days with no charge. Uh, back then, they had a law, you know, where they could uh, lock up, you know, any political activist. Uh, for up to 90 days without a charge. But the law was getting abused and used on anyone they didn't like, you know, and I happened to be one of the victims. So after 90 days, I was then dragged, you know, to the local court. On that day, I get charged for things. Apparently, it went from, you know, sexual assault to stealing lollies. <laughs> and then I get, you know, sentenced to six cuts on the same day. I get dragged to the police and drew blood, you know, not just that, you know, they kept, kept you know, referring to me as a kefir, you know, uh, in Africans, they say kafir, you know, which is um, a very derogatory term, you know, um, mm. so 
get to a point where I really, I lost my cool and I told them to F off. And that was the biggest mistake I made because after that, they almost killed me. You know, they started kicking me, you know, they chipped my front tooth, you know, um, they broke my left arm. Um, you know, they set a dog on me, you know, um, people often see the scar on my right eye. People think it's from boxing, but this is a dog bite. And I almost took off my eye and um, wow. ended up in hospital. And, uh, and I recall, you know, when I was in hospital, uh, that's when I thought to myself, this is wrong. You know, I need to do something about this someday. You know, I, I need to fight for justice. You know, if they can do this to me, they can do this to everyone. You know, uh, and that's when I decided that, they, you know, that someday I was going to be a lawyer or a political activist. So it was that, that, it was that young before you considered boxing, you still thought, I want to be a lawyer, or was it? Yeah. So before you yes. became a boxer? Manchester. Yes. At age 15, yes. I mean, I mean, psychologically, psychologically, I mean, no matter what age you are, that is tough. But being that young, you must have been full of so much aggression. Like you must have been so angry. Look, how, did you, how did you channel it? I was very, very angry growing up. Angry about the whole environment, you know, I lived in, you know, uh, everything that I had to face, you know. Um, I was angry that I came from a poor family, you know, we couldn't afford anything. Um, you know, um, I was angry because of the violence that I was facing every day, you know, people dying, people getting killed, you know, like flies. Um, so, and which is where, um, and it's funny how I got into boxing because I used to, for me, I tried all kinds of sports, you know, I tried all different types of sports because I always thought, you know, sport was going to be my ticket out of poverty. And you know my ticket out of an apartheid South Africa, so um, one of the one of the sports that I was really good at was soccer. You know, so I used to play soccer really well, but because of my temper, that didn't help. You know, um, you know, every time somebody played rough, you know, I would turn around and knock them out, and then I get kicked out. <laughs> you know, it got so bad. You know, they used to call me Mister. Well, we lost you there for a second. You know, because I used to get his red card all the time. <laughs> so I didn't last long in the field. Um, and it so happened that, you know, one day we were playing, you know, against one of the local schools and this kid, then they got a security guard, you know, to escort. Yeah, they got a security guard to escort me out of the field. And yes, he was working out of the field with me. He said to me, you know, kid, I don't think soccer is for you because you don't last long in the field, you know, why don't you? So the next day I went to the boxing gym. This guy turned out to be a boxing trainer and a boxer himself. And, and I recall when I went to the gym, the first thing he said to me is boxing. This is fighting. I need to be, I think about it, you know, boxing is scientific. You know, boxing is like playing a game of chess. You know, of chess. You, know you need to have a very clear mind, calm. You need to be calm and clear. And uh, otherwise you're going to get beat up. So I had to learn the hard way, you know, he put me in sparring with bigger boys and I kept, you know, every time I got angry, I could, kept getting beat up. And eventually I thought to myself, you know, I need to start listening to this guy, you know, and he said to me, Lama, if they catch you with a good punch, just tell yourself, yeah, it's a lucky punch, you know, you know, and I started thinking that way. And I realized when I calmed down, I was doing well, you know, and, and, and that's how I became in a better boxer. But you know what, not only did this change me you know uh not only did, did, did this help me as a boxer it also helped me as a person 
you know, it changed me to this calm, collected person that I am today. And, and growing up in South Africa then, you know, at a time where pretty much every teenager walked around with a gun or a knife, you know, had I not changed my attitude, I'll probably be dead today or locked up in jail. Mm. I mean, that's amazing. And I also think boxing as a sport just has that magic about it. It's able to take people from the streets, you know, teach people how to have structure, channel rage, channel aggression for good. And so, I mean, sport can do that anyway, right? You know, all kinds of sport can focus people, which is great. But boxing seems to have some kind of magic to it that can just help people change around their lives. And um, yeah, I, I, it's a credit to you to, you know, we're here speaking to you in Sydney and it's a testament to um your passion and your resilience to get here. I, I watched a documentary from Louis Thoreau when he was on the streets in South Africa around the mid nineties as well. And it was just harrowing to watch, you know, and he's an amazing journalist, but to see what was going on in the streets and, and like he followed some policemen around, like some white policemen. And I, I'd never forget like how it was, it was like in the early nineties, I think. And it was so, they were so brazen about what they did. You know, they didn't, they were on camera and they would still be like, yeah, we're going in this place. We're going to just get these people. And they just like, you know what I mean? Normally people would be worried that there'd be a camera around, but these guys did not care. And I remember thinking, wow, geez, what a, what a scary place to be, you know? Um, and, 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 and I was saying, um, you know, it's true. They didn't care, you know, whether, you know, there was a camera, um, you know, uh, they just didn't care because they thought, you know, and they felt they were just a law unto themselves mm. and they're, didn't care, you know, about a black man's life. Um, so, and, and I always tell people, you know, uh, that, you know, what I experienced, you know, growing up in South Africa uh, is no different to what other South Africans experience. Uh, a lot of South, Af South Africans experience the same things. The only difference with me is I'm in a position where I'm able to tell my story, you yeah. know, and, yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, yes, mate. Oh, that's, that's better. That's much yeah. better. Much better. Now, everyone didn't need the camera. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see you, but uh, yeah, the audio, once we have the audio. <laughs> yeah, look. Um, you were, you were telling a story there. We caught half of it, maybe, like the necklace, was it? Gosh, what was yeah. that? Yeah, I was explaining that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, it was also, the other thing I had to witness was also black on black violence. Uh, you know, where, you know, if, you know, other people thought you were a snitch or, you know, a sellout, you know, they would, you know, uh, kill you. And I've, I've witnessed, you know, what they used to do. One of the most common things they used to do was, you know, they would place a tie on somebody's neck and, you know, pour petrol on it and then, you know, light them alight, you know, dose them, you know, and they used to call it, they referred to it as the necklace. So I've had to witness all those things, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in South Africa. So. I went through a lot of, um, you know, um, you know, um, trauma, I would say, um, mm. you know, but these are things I had to deal with. And I think in a way, boxing also helped me deal with it. And I think also writing my book in a way helped me deal with it because, you know, you know, as they say, sometimes if, you know, if you fear something, you just got to live up to it, you know, face up to it. You know, um, I, I remember, you know, I used to have a lot of nightmares, you know, about, you know, what I witnessed growing up in South Africa. But I found writing the book in a way made me to like relive that, you know, and um, and I found, and it took me almost four to five years to finish writing my book. 
because sometimes I would write and then I would stop and I'll go through a lot of you know depression because of it and then I'll stop writing and I'll yeah. go back and um, but I realized by the time I finished writing you know uh, I, I, I started sleeping well you know I started not I don't have the nightmares anymore so in a way writing the book kind of helped me hmm. and did you have like back in South Africa did you have a big family like were your mom and dad supportive or or was that kind of like um uh, like yeah like did you get a lot of family support or were you kind of on your own look i i come from a big family uh you know there was um seven or five seven kids and mom and dad uh so you know and that's one thing too and i also talk about that in my book uh that um um you know we believe Africans, you know, sometimes we believe it's always better to have a bigger family because you are able to share your problems and talk about them and deal with them together, you know. Um, and that was always the case. I always had the support of you know, my siblings, I always had the support of my parents, you know, irrespective of how poor we were, you know, we were still able to deal with, you know, uh, all these adver ad adversities we were facing every day, you know. Um, and I always tell people, you know, you know, um, for me, without you know adversity, you know, I wouldn't be here today, and I wouldn't mm. be that I am today. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I can see synergies with Ireland as well. Because back, not my generation, but my dad's generation, they would have lots of kids because, the the minute the kids would turn thirteen, fourteen, they would go out to work. So most of my dad's family you know, didn't finish high school and they learned the trade and it was about getting money to help the family and you'd give most of your money back. And that was kind of what went on um, there quite a lot. But, you know, times are, are kind of changing now. But um, yeah, I mean, families of seven, nine, like how our parents or how our grandparents did that, I'll never know. You know, must have been a hard, I've had one baby and I'm like, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> Look, I understand it because, you know, I was actually, you know, um, I'm the second born in the family, but I'm the first boy in the family. So in our culture, that came with a lot of responsibilities. Because, uh, you know, um, when I was young, you know, I recall even when I was seven years of age, you know, I used to, you know, swim across, you know, um, um, uh, you know, a crocodile infested river, you know, just to catch fish so that, you know, we can feed the family, you know. Uh, uh, it came with a lot of responsibilities. Uh, I mean, being the first boy comes with a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> you know, um, I had to do it. Were you were you and, kind uh, of like the, uh, the protector uh, of the family? Um, I had no choice. And uh, I, I would say I'm second provider, you know, if, um, dad will be the first provider and then I'll be the second provider being the first boy in the family. Um, so yeah, it came with a lot of responsibilities. <clears throat> and can I ask you about your name? Like, when I heard <laughs> your name the first time, it just made me smile. And we know each other, to, well, I know you to live, and you were in her exhibition, which was amazing. And when I saw your photo and I saw your name, I was like, wow. I didn't even know anything about you, but straight away I was like, well, this guy is just like cool. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about your name? Like, I mean, it's such a happy name. I mean, is there any story behind that? Or Look, honestly, my mom gave me the name, you know, and uh, I don't know what she was thinking when she gave me the name. If she was still alive, I would ask her. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's a beautiful name. Uh, I don't 
I'm happy she gave the name, but I really don't know why she, she came up with that name. Hmm. Well, I think I, like in, in many ways, when I heard your story and read more about it, it was kind of, it was a really, it was almost like an analogy of like what you're doing. You're like, you have all this love and you're giving it back and you're doing some amazing things. So I think you're in the right place. You've got the right name. It's a lot better than Neil, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, love, we'll go back into, obviously, we just spoke about you growing up in South Africa, uh, and then you've transitioned into boxing, thanks to the security guard um, leading you down that path. And again, for anyone who doesn't know what you achieved in boxing, coming a three-time champion, was it, wel was it all welterweight? Is that right? Uh, I won my first world title at uh, super lightweight. lightweight. I won the IBF title. And then I went on to win the IBO title at um, Walter Waite and uh, also won the WBF title at Walter Waite. Um, yeah, so, you know, I was world champion in two weight classes. Wow. Yeah, phenomenal, mate. That is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I know, obviously, you fought some big names as well. I mean, probably from, from nowadays and people who currently watch boxing, you obviously had a match against um, Alvarez, who, I mean, is currently dominating. Um, the sport of boxing, which is amazing. I believe you've we also Floyd Mayweather's sparring partner before he fought Ricky Hatton. Yeah, I spent I spent four months training with Mayweather. You know, I helped him in preparation of his fight against Ricky Hatton. Um, so it was it was it was an experience. You know, it was in you know it was great working out. You know, with pound for pound, the best fighter in the world. And what was that like, you know, if you, you, you've already described your, your past and growing up in South Africa. Like when you were sitting in the dressing room before Alvarez, like what was going through your head? Were you thinking, how did I get here? You know, that must have been so invigorating. Look, I just think, and this is where, and, you know, and again, I, I talk about this in my book. I think people should, you know, try and find the book. It's called Tough Love. Yep. Uh, you, know, um, you know, the reason I wrote the book was mainly to try, you know, um, and as you know, I wanted to inspire some people out there, you know, and encourage them, you know, and just let them realize that, you know, no matter how your life started, you know, um, you know, um, you can always make your dream come true, you know, um, as long as you work hard towards it, you know, and you are going to face a lot of adversities in life, but you know, with hard work and determination, your dream is going to come true. You know, I'll give an example. I didn't start school till I was nine years of age. You look at me today, and I hold seven university degrees. You know, seven? <laughs> seven degrees. I'm probably the most educated athlete that's ever lived. You know, I'm working on my PhD now. So just because I started school late, you know, it, won't, it didn't stop me from achieving, you know, what I wanted to achieve. You know, just because I came from, you know, apartheid South Africa, you know, it didn't stop me to become the person that I wanted to become, you know? I went on to become a world champion, you know? I come from, like I said, I come from a very poor family. I was born in this little town called Messina, little shanty town, you know? Look where I am today, you know? I'm based in Sydney, you know? I'm probably, you know, I'm one of, one of the, you know, I'm one of the leading solicitors in, in Sydney, so. So you know. there's so many things I want to ask you there. One, <laughs> your village is called Messina, which is also like an amazing ice cream shop in Sydney. <laughs> so that, that, that's also like feels very small world. Two, I kind of want to be angry at you because Gary and I started this podcast because, you know, I have anxiety and we're trying to like 
<laughs> be good at, we'll feel good about ourselves. And then every <laughs> guest we get on, we're like, okay, this guy is like next level. He's so much better than us. You've got seven degrees, three world boxing titles. You come from South Africa in the apartheid. <laughs> Our lives, you're a lawyer. Yeah, you're a lawyer, a top lawyer in Sydney. Yeah. Our lives, I don't think you can see the screen, but I feel like so small right now. <laughs> nah, look, but the, the biggest thing, you know, for me, the biggest thing at the moment is, you know, being able to give back to the community, you know, through my work as a solicitor. You know, uh, each year I take on you know, a number of, you know, cases on a pro bono basis, you know, and, and, and that, that has been, you know, inspirational to many troubled young people, you know, whom I've actually helped turn their lives around, you know, to become fully functioning, well-adjusted, you know, members of society. You know, I also provide pro bono services, you know, to indigenous people. Uh, you know, for me personally, I actually feel that, you know, the incarceration rate, you know, of Aboriginal people in Australia, you know, is disproportionate. And, you know, and there also appears to be, you know, significant, you know, injustices visited upon them, you know, on a systematic basis. And, and, and I kind of compare, you know, their lifestyle to my lifestyle growing up in South Africa, you know. So when I get an opportunity, you know, to help them, you know, and, you know, um, provide them, you know, pro bono services, you know, I, I feel I'm giving back to the community, you know, which is a, you know, which is a great thing. Uh, you know, I also, you know, um, advocate, you know, for victims of you know, domestic violence, you know, uh, by encouraging them, you know, to live violent relationships, you know, and sometimes linking them, you know, with um, appropriate, you know, support services. You know, and at times, you know, I, I actually personally, you know, uh, pay for their, you know, interim shelter until such time, you know, they can secure proper and permanent accommodation. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, for me, that's what makes me happy as a person. You know, despite mm -hmm. everything else that I've achieved in life, you know, just being help, help, able to provide and help other people out there, that's what, you know, keeps me happy. Yeah, we've had we've had several guests say the same thing, Gary, right? Remember Ben Evans said the same? He said the best thing in life you can do is actually give back. And you particularly obviously have an amazing career professionally, sports-wise, and it's great to hear that giving back. And I, it's also not an easy thing to do. A lot of people are too busy and they don't do it. So um, fair play to you for doing it. I did want to ask you one question about with your sports career when you got to that elite level and you said you know you'd been through a lot of uh, adversity to get there if there was one thing you could put it down to which you feel kind of carried you through that like was it determination guts like could you maybe tell us what you think that was that got you through all the way to the top i think it's just my attitude towards life you know always thinking positive you know i only I, always thinking that nothing is impossible you know, and, and I think um, I've also been, um, you know, I look at people like, um, you know, Nelson Mandela, you know, um, I see where they came from, you know, what they did in life, you know. Um, so I find people like that, you know, being very inspirational and, you know, uh, influence, you know, in a way they kind of influenced me, you know, um, um, to, to pursue my dreams. Uh, you know, um, so I always believed, I've always, always, you know, when I do something, I give it my hundred percent. Okay. So when I started boxing, I gave it my hundred percent. So I believe, you know, and I always tell people there are three types of fighters, you know, you got the 
the naturally talented fighters, and then you got the less talented fighters, but that work so hard, you know, and then you got the talented fighters that they don't, you know, uh, work hard. You know, often you find the less talented that really, really work out, you know, doing better than the natural talented ones because mm. they put on work. And then you find the less talented, the natural talented ones who don't work hard, you know, they don't make it in life. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I seem to think of myself as one of those, you know, uh, maybe less talented, but hard worker. Yep. You know, always work hard in everything. And that's the attitude I bring in life in anything that I do in life. You know, you just gotta work hard. And if you do work hard, you know, your dream will come true. You know, and I always tell people that, you know, um, and, and, and we all have dreams, you know, and if you think when you were growing up, you always, you know, you probably thought, oh, I want to be a pilot, I want to be a doctor, I want to be this, I want to be that, but it's only those people, you know, who, you know, uh, follow their dreams, you know, who chase their dreams, who make it true, you know, who make their dreams become a, re a reality, you know, uh, if you work out towards your dream, your dream will come true. What uh, also love more so like moving forward uh, in today's today and previous times the last few months, all the things that's happened to you in the past, including your boxing career, the highs, the lows, etc., and obviously your childhood. Do you still get memories or anything coming back or anything that happens nowadays that reminds you of those times and it maybe gives you that extra bit of motivation or it maybe brings you down the opposite way. And if it does, what do you do to deal with that? You've mentioned already during COVID that you use training as a coping mechanism. Is there anything else that you do? Oh, yes. There's a lot that I do, you know. Um, and, and for example, I'll give you a good example. You know, sometimes, you know, like every year, you know, uh, from the 1st of January, you know, I fast for 40 days. Okay. okay cool. For me, it's not a religious thing. You know, it's more a cultural thing because uh, for me, it makes me realize, you know, um, that, you know, out there, there's some people who are doing it tougher. There are people who are still going to bed without a meal, you know. But by me doing that makes me realize that, you know, if I slack down, I could lose everything, every, you know, I could lose everything. So I need to keep working hard. So. Mm. When I fast and I get hungry and you know thirsty and all that makes me realize, makes me want to work harder. So and that's one of the things that I do, you know. So there's always going to be times where you know you feel like you know you're not doing enough or you feel you know you're slacking down a little bit, you know. You just gotta keep on thinking positive and just you know push yourself. Find a way, you know, that will help you motivate yourself, you know, to work harder. Mm. Wow, that's amazing and. Do you think like even throughout your life, was there any motivational figures? Like you mentioned Nelson Mandela and even let's say for us as two white guys on the other side of the world, Nelson Mandela was just a figurehead for peace in every country in the world. Um, he was an inspiration to us all and his story. Was he a big factor in your motivating or did you have any other mentors throughout your career? Look, he was a, he was, uh, he was a big factor in my life. Uh, but, you know, I would say my parents too, you know, yeah. um, you know, uh, especially my mom, you know, I had a very, very close relationship with my mother. Um, you know, my parents were not educated, but they knew the importance of education. You know, they always believed you know, that, you know, um, um, 
and and it, which is true, you know. And uh, now I always tell people, you know, um, you could no one can ever take your education away from you. You know, people often ask me, you know, um, you know, um, between your boxing and your education, you know, well, what is the, you know, what's the most achievement? You know, what would you rank as the best achievement in your life? You know, and I always tell people it's it's my education, you know, because. Well, with boxing, you know, it gives you status, it gives you money, you know, but, you know, along the way, a better fighter is going to come along, they're going to beat you, they're going to take those titles away. Yeah. But, you know, with your degrees, they remain your degrees forever. Even when you're gone, you'll be remembered, you know, to have held six, seven degrees, you know, no one is ever going to take that away from you. So, mm. the importance of, of, of education, you know, somebody once said, you know, the power is in the pen, and I believe in that, you know, so... I would say, yes, my parents played a very, very big part, you know, by encouraging me, you know, to pursue my dreams, you know, uh, encourage me to study hard. And what about, I mean, the future for, for Lovemore? What, what we've read and what we've heard is you've got a big interest in getting into politics. Where do you sit with that currently? Look, that, that's definitely something I'm doing in the future. Um, you know, um, I'm, look, uh, South Africa is my country of birth. You know, um, Australia is my adop adopted home and I'm grateful to be an Australian, but I still feel there's a lot of work that needs to be done in South Africa as well. Uh, you know, and I feel the good work that Mandela did, you know, is going down the drain because, you know, pretty much everyone that's taken over after him you know, they've pretty much, you know, um, played a part, you know, in, in destroying his legacy and his hard work. You know, uh, you look at it, you know, you look at, you know, uh, corruption, there's so much corruption, you know, in, in South Africa at the moment. Uh, and um, there's no accountability, people just don't care, you know, those in power just don't care, they just do as they please. Uh, and, 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 and who's suffering at the end, you know, it's, um, the, the ordinary person, you know. It's been 27 years, you know, since South Africa became a democratic state. But 27 years later, you still have, you know, people, you know, living in a, in a shack. You know, you still have people, you know, uh, relying on, on the bucket sanitation system. You know, uh, people don't have electricity. You know, people um, have water shortage. You know, it's like going back to, you know, uncivilization. You know, that needs to change. And part of the reason is because um, most of the people in power are uneducated. You know, you're having people that don't deserve to be, to hold those, you're giving people position that they don't deserve, you know, only because, you know, they help to remain in power. And which is, you know, so I'm, I'm disappointed with the current, with the current, you know, uh, ruling party, the African National Cong Congress. Uh, it's failed the people and, and I think we need people like me to go back and try and help, you know, South Africa move forward, you know. And, and I think the first thing you need to do is, uh, you know, make sure there's free education for everybody. Don't just talk about education, free education. Make sure it is there. And once people are educated, people will be able to, you know, to get jobs. And once you create jobs and then you, 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 you know, you decrease, you know, uh, uh, crime, you know. You look at the crime rate in South Africa at the moment, you know. It's, uh, you know, South Africa raised the highest. It's, it's right at the top, you know, uh, domestic violence, you know, children getting raped, 
that needs to stop. You know, somebody needs to mm. do it. So I need to go back to South Africa. Mm. I need to go well, back and get into politics and try and bring some changes. Well, if Nelson Mandela is anything to go by, I think his degree was also in law. Uh, so I think you're in pretty good company that you could uh, follow his tracks. And I think one of the amazing things about Mandela was he, he was educated, as you said, like he educated himself while he was in prison. And, you know, he ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, one of the things I used to love about him is when he did get into power, it would have been easy, um, you know, for his people who were persecuted for so many years to go the complete opposite, but he didn't. He kind of, I remember one thing is they were talking about change in the colors of the South African rugby, jer rugby jersey because it represented the kind of the white history of South Africa. Mm. And he was, he said, no, no, like this is still our history, no matter what. And, you know, he just showed so much strength because that was the answer. Like it's, it's the same with a lot of politics, same here in Australia. You know, you have one party who comes in and they're like, well, this is how we're going to do things. The other party comes in and says, well, what all they did was shit, let's change it. And you don't get anywhere. And, yeah. and he was such a visionary that he came in and he tried to gel it all together. Like imagine if you had po uh, po political parties who said, okay, maybe I'm liber liberal, but what the Labour Party did with that policy, that was pretty good. Let's keep it or let's you know advance it. That's the way democracy should work. But unfortunately, it's not kind of going that way. So yeah, yeah look, maybe... Maybe yeah. one day when we, we look back, we'll be like, we actually did a podcast with the president of South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> look, um, for me, it's not really about becoming president. It's more about bringing changes. If, you know, if any way I could help, you know, uh, and I think I am, I can, I can do it. I'm already helping out a lot of people and I'm involved in a lot of charities in South Africa and you know, just South Africa, Africa in general. You know, I'm trying to help people out. Um, you know, um, talking about Mandela, you know, uh, you know, if you look at it, you know, one of the best things he ever did for South Africa was, you know, the, you know, when he introduced the Truth and Reconciliation, you know, uh, Commission. You know, um, without that, you know, South Africa would probably ended up, you know, the, the probably it was leading to a civil war, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, because of that, you know, it stopped a possible civil war happening. You know, some people look at him and say, you know, he was a traitor because, you know, uh, he introduced, you know, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. But you look at it, you know, um, it's helped save a lot of problems. You know, it helps stop a possible civil war. Um, but the thing is, at the end of the day, no matter what you do, there's always somebody that's going to say something negative about you, you know, your deeds. Mm. You know, I like what Mandela used to say, you know, that he's not a saint, you know, but he does the job, you yeah. know. So someday some people are going to look at me the same way, you know. I don't expect people to see me as a saint because of what I do or what I'm going to be doing for South Africa. You know, I expect some people to say some negative things about me, but that's just life in general. Mm. Oh, yeah, like especially if you succeed, if you succeed in life, you're just going to have people who are constantly going to try and, and take you down. Um, and are, are you are you a family man, Love More? You mentioned you have a granddaughter, I think it was. Like, do you have, like, children? My children, um, my children are all adults now. The youngest one is 18. So, and, and I've got two grandchildren, you know, um, uh, one, six, one, one, one year and six years. So I'm a happy man. That's and, good. Do you have family back in South Africa still? 
I do. You know, all my siblings are still based in South Africa. So, yeah, I still have strong connections, you know, with South Africa. Yeah. Well, I mean, just listen to how you spoke and throughout this podcast. I mean, I know they'd all be so proud of you um, to come where you've, you know, where you started to where you are now to now giving back. I mean, it's, I mean, I just feel it's an absolute pleasure chatting to you about all this. And um, yeah, well done, Mace. I think you're an absolute credit, inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. The, the last part of the, the podcast, Love More, is the little quick fire questions. Pretty simple. Um, just four questions, just short answers. So the first question we ask is, when are you at your happiest? When I'm with my family, you know, and I love family. Beautiful. Do you yeah. have a favourite family member? <laughs> <laughs> favourite daughter? My grandchildren. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, out, of, out of 10 where do you think the world is currently in terms of mental health awareness oh look uh, i would say you know we're probably sitting there at around six you know there's a lot more that could be done you know to assist with mental health issues uh, out of 10 where are you currently with your own mental health Oh, look, I think I'm sitting there about, you know, eight, nine, you know, I'm happy, you know, I always find ways, you know, to deal, you know, um, you know, stress and, um, you know, um, but, you know, I'm a human being, so I still, you know, have, you know, every day, my job is a very stressful job as a lawyer as well, you know, so, you know, as long as, you know, you find ways, you know, to maintain your mental health, which is what I'm doing, which is part of the things, you know, I do is training. So, um, you know, I'm sitting there about eight and nine, I would say. Is it is it hard as a lawyer, love more to, you know, you represent a lot of people, let's say maybe disadvantaged people. Is it hard, like when you go home at night, is it difficult to switch off? Like, do you carry a lot of the, the burden when you go home or is, is that a challenge in, in the profession that you have? Look, I think the best way to deal it, with it is you got to have something to do, something to, you got to find a way to deal with it. You know, I remember when I started as a lawyer, you know, I, I was going through a lot of, you know, um, stress. I would go home and I was stressed because some of the cases, some of the things you deal with every day. Remember, as a lawyer, you know, you're dealing with other people's problems. That's mm. what you, and some of these things you have to deal with, you know, like, they're very concerning and, you know, you can't just ignore them, you know, uh, so you have to find a way to deal with it. And for me, one of the ways is training, you know, I go home, you know, um, you know, if I have to hit the bag, hit the bag, punching bag or go for a run, you know, and, and that's why you find a lot of lawyers, most of them end up, you know, having, becoming alcoholics because, you know, they go home, they start stressing and instead of doing something about it, something positive, they end up just drinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had stories of lawyers becoming you know, drug addicts, you know, because of stress and all that. You know, you just got to find a way to deal with it. And for me, it's training. Mm. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading a book um, some time ago and it mentioned about lawyers saying they're at highest risk of suicide because of the stress involved in the job and everything that comes with it. I mean, I, I can't remember the exact statistics, but I remember lawyers being really high up there when it came to suicide. Yes, now it's happening. It's happening every day, and and it's sad, you know. Uh, I think, but look, there's uh, there's a lot of support out there, you know. And I think one great thing we have in Australia is this support out there for people, you know. As compared to countries like you know, 
is where people don't have much support, you know, especially when it comes to mental health issues. You know, uh, so, you know, we're in a lucky country, you know. You know. The last question, a uh, lot more of the quick fire questions, is uh, if you could re recommend just one thing for people to do each day to improve their mental health, what would it be? Get a puppy. Get a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, exercise. Yeah, cool. What, what's your puppy's name and what's the, the breed of dog? I, I've, got a, I've got a Siberian Husky. His name is oh. Shaggy. Shady? Shaggy, Shaggy. Shaggy. Shaggy, yes. Oh, like the, <laughs> the musician, Shaggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice idea. It wasn't me. Nice big <laughs> dog. They're beautiful dogs. Be they are beautiful dogs, yeah. They're, um... He's a lovely dog, you know. It's, uh, it keeps me happy. You know, and um, you know, and, and I'm so happy I got him because, you know, I've seen a lot of changes in me since I got the dog and my family can see a lot of changes in me since I got the dog, you know, it's uh, the best thing I did. Phenomenal animals, dogs, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's just as we wrap up, love more. I think we've had, we've, we've inter um, interviewed, I mean, 21 guests and this episode has been a little bit different in the fact that, I mean, it gives, I think, one thing taken away from mental health, mental illness, it gives a lot of perspective and because a lot of previous guests we've had and previous conversations me and Neil have had, it's been about trying to deal with stress and the times we're in and things that are going wrong in our life. And it's phenomenal to hear you, what you've went through and compare, obviously your story is, is pretty unique for us here in Australia, people in South Africa. As you mentioned, you're, you're not unique in that regard, but for myself and Neil, like you almost feel ashamed to complain about a day-to-day -day thing. I know context is needed for everybody, but perspective, it does give me perspective. And the fact that you do simple things like you fast for 40 days, just to, again, give yourself perspective, even though you've already went through so much. And again, you've reached the highest levels of elite sport, the highest levels of a high level of law. You're phenomenal, mate. Seven degrees, three Welterweight champion of championship boxing belts. You're giving back to charity. You're giving back to South Africa. You've mm. got ambitions to do even more. You're a father, a grandfather, an absolute legend. Privileged to speak to you. I've got absolutely yeah, no doubt you'll make a massive impact in South Africa and probably continue to do so in Australia. It's been an honour to speak to you, mate, and you've given me a lot to think about. Yeah, and I think the only, the only bit I would add on there would be you know, it could have been easy for you to have a chip on your shoulder and say, you know, you know, fuck the world. Or like, you know, this is not a place for me, which often happens for people when they have mental health conditions. And um, But you haven't done that. Like you've kind of done the complete opposite, which is like amazing to think. And um, it's actually funny because a lot of people who go through adversity, persecution, we had a drag queen on one of the earlier episodes who spoke about, like the LGBTQI plus community and how they'd been through decades and sometimes hundreds of thousands of years of persecution, but it formed this amazing community and strength amongst them. And you epitomize that in a single person almost that, and everything you've spoken in this whole episode has been around positivity. So I think like you should be very proud of that, but it's also, it's just funny, isn't it? How like you go through so much shit, but then you can come out the other end and uh, yeah, if people are listening, I think we can all learn from that and, uh, you know, apply it to our own lives. So well done. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure being on your podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, 
and thanks for the great comments. I appreciate that. You're very welcome, mate. And if if anyone does want to reach out to you, love more or your practice, you know, in Look, law, like how do they get in touch? Look, I'm based in Rockdale. You know, if you just Google Love More Lawyers, you can find me. I'm also on social media and I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram. So I'm easy to find. And obviously your book. Where, where can people can get your book on Amazon? Yes, you can get the book on, online. You can even get it from Dimmit. And it's out there. It's called Tough Love. Tough Love by Love More. And the... For Walt's lawyer. That's what it's called. Brilliant. Well, thank you once again, mate. Thank you for your time. I'm sure you're a busy man. Uh, and we'll be in touch and the podcast is live, but thanks so much, mate. And it's been an absolute privilege. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels, including Instagram and Twitter, at These Lands Are Mental. And if you do have a topic or a guest or subject that you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and send in your suggestions. Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzhere, and the Black Dog Institute.